in this episode of Gareth Jones on Speed, I get a chance to talk to one of my heroes. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm Gareth. As you know, many episodes of this podcast start with, I'm driving to Wales. This one doesn't, because I'm already in Wales, driving around Wales on my way from North Wales to Harlech on the coast, where I've arranged an interview with a fascinating man. A man who rose to the very highest level in the international motor industry. He was Vice President Head of Development for the Ford Motor Company for many, many years, responsible for some amazing Ford cars. And he held that position until he retired from Ford in 2007. Since then, he's returned to his roots in North Wales. His name is Richard Parry Jones and it's a huge privilege to have the opportunity to sit down and chat with him at length for Gareth Jones on Speed. Richard Parry Jones, first of all I have to shake your hand, it's a huge privilege to meet you. As listeners to my podcast will know, I'm a lifelong Ford fan. I grew up in a family where we always had Fords and I'm a car nut, I've read all the car magazines since I was a child and every now and again I noticed a Welsh name cropping up in reference to my favourite car company Richard Parry Jones we're not related are we? That's on my knowledge (laughs) (laughs) Explain to me how did you make the journey from Bangor to one of the highest positions in one of the most prolific car companies on the planet and we're in no hurry. I need to know every turn and every corner. How did it start for you then? It started a bit like you actually. I was a young guy, you know, 10 years old and below that when I started I was absolutely fascinated by cars and I was also curious about how things worked. So I started to sketch cars. I produced a little range of models as a young kid. And I collected, of course, model cars, dinky toys, actually. And my brother was Corgi. And we competed, you know, as you do with siblings. I think it's around about somewhere between 10 and 12 years old. I decided I wanted to go into the car industry on the creative side, design, engineering, that sort of thing. And I always had a soft spot for Fords. I don't really know why. I just liked them. I liked the optimistic design in the post-war years, you know. Mm -hmm. They were one of the early ones to bring American optimistic styling to the UK and Europe, following the sort of immediate post-war cars looked a bit like the pre-war cars. Yes, indeed, yes. Whereas really, like the console when it came out, then the Anglia, the Capri, the Classic, and then, of course, the Cortina, these cars were all about a different attitude, a different outlook Mm -hmm. on cars, where style was very important, but also riding the wave of people actually being able to afford a car, aspire to one. And my dad had an Anglia, I remember that. We had before that a Morris Minor. And the contrast 
in the appeal to me as a young boy was remarkable. The muggy was okay, but the angle of that was the future. <laughs> Austin Rover car of that period, it was quite cosy. It was almost like a council car in some respect, but Ford brought a degree of internationalism to cars in Europe. Straight edges. Like you say, futuristic design. The Ford Futura was an influence, wasn't it? It was. But also, you can see the little clues in the naming strategy. These were the days, but let's not forget, when affordable jet travel became a reality. So, you know, the Comet was around. And people suddenly started to go to Spain and Italy for holidays. So, of course, part of the marketing genius of Ford was capitalise on that thinking by giving these exotic-sounding, but actually European, names to their new models. It's part of the fraud branding uh, position appeal. Anyway, at the same time as all this was going on, I was taken to watch the RAC rally by my mum. Where was this? Uh, in, that is the point. In better, sorry, yes. Yeah. Actually, the Swallow Falls Hotel yes. car park. Yes. I remember it well. There was a Zephyr. There was a Raymond Mails. There was a Saab. 96. Yes. Carlson. Ex- absolutely. The excitement, the sound, the colours. I was captivated. And seeing those cars blasting through the forest on the edge... In an environment, of course, I loved the forests of Wales. These cars transformed my view of motorsport. I like racing. My parents used to take us to Alton Park, Uh to the Gold Cup, which, of course, was famous in those days. It was Graham Hill and Jim Clark in Lotus Cortinas. You can't imagine. Formula One drivers just there, and let's have a go in the saloon cars as well, while we're here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't imagine that now, of course, totally different world. So I was exposed to a motorsport as a kid by my parents and really got the bug. So, of course, in the end, what I did when I decided to write to Ford as a schoolboy and say, I want to join your company. Did you really? Yeah, and they wrote back and said, well, it's great. You're a bit young yet. <laughs> right back when you're, you know, roughly 16 and do well at maths and science. Anyway, I wrote back, of course, on the day I was 16. So you were educated in Bangor? In Bangor, in the yeah. fire school, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Very, very good school with a brilliant physics teacher whose knowledge he shared with me I've used practically every day for 40 years. His name wasn't Gomer Davis, by No, it chance. wasn't. It, okay. was, it was Mr. Lowe, Jack Lowe. Jack Lowe. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, he's had a great influence <laughs> on Fords for the last 30 years, yeah, ultimately, he, then. In an indirect way, although he was also the guy, when I shared with him my ambition to be an engineer, he said, you wasted time. You know, Welsh people don't become engineers. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I ignored his advice on that score, but I absolutely followed his advice when it came to physics. So I wrote to Ford, as I said, when I was 16, and they said, OK, here's the scheme. You can apply. But, of course, there are thousands of applicants and only about six places. So for some reason I can't explain, I got in. At that time, I was just turning 17. And I, since I was 17 to now I'm 67, so 50 years, all I've really done has been paid to follow my hobby. 
What a wonderful thing to do, yeah. So, was this Dagenham you were based at first, or did you go to Ford HQ in Essex? Where were no, you? I was taken on by Ford UK, yeah. who, as you say, were headquarters in Essex. But they had a scheme in those days for apprentices, and the apprentice training school is in Romford, mm-hmm. where we, as, let's say, student apprentices, i.e. going to be graduates, were trained in the same class as the craft apprentices and the technician apprentices. So we got all the basic training of filing and mm-hmm. and uh, fabrication and welding and machine tool fitting and so on. For the first two years, we had the same curriculum. So actually, I was very lucky because I had what's called a thin sandwich course. So every half a year, I spent time in the workshop and time studying in university. Happened to be Salford in Manchester. Very good course again, very Mm. practical course taught by people who'd worked in industry, not only in universities. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I finished, I was actually very, what they call nowadays, work-ready. I was totally trained. I, I knew what work involved. I knew which department did which jobs, so I knew where to go inside Ford when I graduated. But I never forget the fact I was equipped with the same sweet basic skills. So when it comes to designing things, it's almost intuitive to think how are we going to make it. Mm-hmm. Rather than can I design it, somebody else's problem to make it. Now, it's interesting you say that because I've always imagined that the Ford Motor Company, as a megalith, tend to train people with one specialization where you, you know, there are designers who just design, there are engineers, there are people responsible for the cup holders in cars alone. And you don't get a very broad, integrated business education doesn't seem to be the case from the experience you described there no i think that you absolutely need to be specialized in this modern world because without specialists you can't have the depth of knowledge you need Mm -hmm. to be expert in that discipline but i always use what i call the t model for career development and i do believe that the basic starting point should be broad I get a good grasp of what the surrounding country looks like. Then you have to specialize for a while. I think even future leaders should spend some time going down deep and becoming an expert in something. Otherwise, the risk is you never really know what it is to be an expert. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the risk is you undervalue it. And don't realize how crucial it is. But eventually, you can decide, I'm going to carry on specializing or I want to broaden myself. This is the T model. The vertical element of the T is the depth. Mm -hmm. The cross at the top, of course, is breadth. And I was lucky enough to become quite broad early on, having specialized a bit in uh, sashi components. And later on, I was lucky to have total responsibility for a whole car in my 20s. You can't believe it, can you? So what was the first car you were given complete responsibility for with Ford? Well, it was actually probably the Escort XR3. Really? Yes. I'd worked on the Capri sometime and a couple of other models, and then I was actually assigned to what was called the Erica program. This was the very first 
front rail drive escort. We did a lot of work on that, and I was junior, but I was really learning fast and quite influential in the specification and so on. So this is what, 1978, 79? Uh, yes, it is. It is. Yeah. You're right. And at that time, I went to America for a few trips to start to seed the Escort as a world car. There was first attempt, really, since the Model T. And then I went back and was given the chance to work with a colleague to specify the XR3. This was Bob Lutz behind it. He was joining Ford Europe in those days, and he was really fascinated by the Golf GTI, as we all were. And he said, we need something like that, something to, you know, compete with that GTI. So we set about designing the derivative of XR3. To be honest, you know what we did? Actually, we designed our own company car. It was for us. Really? We were guys in our 20s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we knew what we wanted. Wow, great. And we suspected the way we really liked it. Can I <laughs> comment on that? Mm-hmm. One of the successes of the Ford Motor Company, in my understanding, was that this was one of the first examples of a car manufacturer who built cars that the employees of the company themselves could afford and ultimately guaranteed, therefore, the success yeah. of the company. This sounds like an extension of that, where Ford people <laughs> are building cars for people who will buy Fords. Certainly, there are parallels there. You're right, absolutely. And, you know, when we launched it, the Escort at that time became the best-selling car in its class, so-called C-class. Mm-hmm. And the XR3 sold one out of every four yeah. Escorts yeah, yeah. was an XR3. Yeah, I remember. So we were wildly successful beyond our dreams and then of course we did the XR3i and I was promoted again and again it was quite interesting I was lucky I had bosses who saw something and took a risk they gambled a bit on me so I was able to take on bigger and bigger projects Mm -hmm. and as long as I performed you know people I could repay that trust then, I, of course, I would have even bigger job. Once again, my impression of Ford is of a very conservative company because of its size and scale. And yet you're talking about a firm who are taking gambles on a spotty soft lad from northwest Wales. Were they bold and brave? I think it is a mixture of as many things. There is an element of conservatism in any large company, risk averse and so on, which makes sense. But it's not so rigid mm-hmm. that there aren't plenty of examples of being confident enough to take some risks. So certainly in personnel, what I liked about Ford in those days especially was it was a really a meritocracy. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter where you were from, how you spoke. It only mattered not who you know, what you know, and what you can do. And of course, for me in the, let's say, the late 60s, early 70s, in UK interest rate, that was actually quite refreshing. Uh-huh. And this is very, very much about the American culture coming to UK and spilling over. Mm-hmm. So, yes, they were willing to take risks, but it was a controlled risk. You know, they could easily intercede if they didn't like what they saw. Right, yeah. But they liked it, so on it went. Sort of a safety net, really. <laughs> Yes, I give you an example much later in my career. I went to the US to do a research job and I came back 
to help head of manufacturing sort out a new way of working in Europe. That was a short-term special task force. It was working in Dagenham, I remember that. Towards the end, he said to me, the head of manufacturing in Europe, what do you want to do next after this task force is over? And I said, well, actually, I'd spent all my career in R&D. I'd like to spend a little bit of time in manufacturing, not because I want to switch disciplines and become a long-term manufacturing guy, But I think if I spend time making the cars I designed, I will come back and be a better designer. He said, I buy that. I uh, like that thinking. Okay, where in manufacturing do we want to go? I said, well, the logical place to go is process engineering. It leans heavily on what I know. So it's not too risky. He said, waste of time. Yeah, absolute waste of time. You really want to learn about manufacturing. You have to run a plant. So I said, oh, yes, but I don't know how. He said, this was Friday. He said, go home if we can. I'll have a think about it. Come and see me on Monday. So I went and saw him on the Monday. And he said to me, I hope you have your bags packed. I said, why? He said, because tomorrow morning you start as head of the manufacturing plant in Cologne. Oh, Lord. Wow. I didn't speak a word of German. Wow. I never worked in manufacturing proper job in manufacturing yeah. in my life and I was going to be suddenly in charge of 8,000 people wow. making 1,340 cars a day in the shift pattern we had that's one every 52 seconds I said are you sure he said oh yeah I'm sure off you go anyway I got there and of course it was risky it was bold but of course there was an insurance policy above and below so I had very experienced first-line report team who would know everything about the plant and basically wouldn't let anything bad happen. Mm-hmm. And also a boss who was X from this level right? who knew the network of people who work for me and could therefore always check, how are you doing? <laughs> anything I need to know, good and bad? So I was really well sandwiched. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> the sauce in the sandwich, you know, giving it a new texture. Yeah. So that sounds like another example of Ford being fairly bold. You're now installed in Cologne with responsibility from the bigger European Fords. Was this Granada period? It was Granada period. Uh, Actually, Scorpio. Of course. And uh, Fiesta. We made roughly 1,100 Fiestas a day and 250 Scorpios. I spent just over two years there. And I was about to go down to Portugal to set up with VW. It was based on Stubal, just south of Lisbon. Charan, yeah. Galaxy, yeah. and eventually Alhambra. Yeah. VW designed it. Yeah. I was sort of overseeing the development. I'll tell you an anecdote about that. Yes, I'd love to hear that. <laughs> we used to go on these drives with the VW team. Yeah. And uh, Ford guys. And then after we drove around the countryside with the prototypes, we would sit down together on two sides of a long table to debrief. I was, of course, on the Ford side and all the guys like Seifert and so on and Piesch for our other side. Wow. We started the debrief and Albert Kaspers, who was my boss at the time, said when the VW people invited us to comment, he said, well... I give it to Richard to comment. He's our expert. So I started talking about the 
things and the response from BW was it wasn't an issue, it was not very sensitive, it was not a problem and so on and so on. We went through again and again. P.S. was sitting on the table opposite Casper's, totally quiet. He wasn't even looking up. So you didn't know, was he thinking about and listening or was he doing something else? But after about 15 minutes, I said something about the steering. And he didn't look up. He just said, er hat recht. He's right. Wow. And the whole room was very quiet. I repeated a bit more detail about what I thought needed fixing. And the attitude in the whole room changed. Suddenly, we're being listened to. Wow. Just one intervention by this very powerful guy who of course really knew his stuff when yeah. it came to yeah. driving cars and feeling things famously so yeah. yeah so that was a very interesting episode but eventually i have found a house i found a school i was ready to move and casper said okay give me another week so weeks passed i got on the phone to him and i said albert i'm gonna lose the house my kids need to start school i need a decision he said okay we changed the plan. You're not going to Portugal. We want you to go back into vehicle engineering in Mechanisch in Germany and take over vehicle chief job. This was the time when we'd done the rather inferior escort iteration in the very early 90s. Yes. Which was panned by the press. Yeah. This is the one with the mechanical ABS, is that right? Yeah, those things, yes. Yeah. And I remember when I was working at Clone, my dad wasn't very well. He lived in Bangor. He went into the hospital in Carnarvon, and my mum called me and said, it's not good, you need to come over. So I jumped on a plane, and I rented a Escort. I hadn't been near a prototype for two years. So I didn't really know what the fuss was about, but the car was being panned. I got into the car. It was 1.4 L manual. Mm-hmm. I drove out the airport and I honestly thought, what on earth have we done? <laughs> this car was so lacking in, in some key areas. Live rear axle, four speed. No, no, no. it wasn't live. No. It was a twist beam. It was front wheel drive. Yeah. Twist beam. But it was executed, not in a great way. Oh, sorry, sorry, this is the front-wheel drive yeah, expert, so it's absolutely. short up, not the Mark II. No, yeah, no, yeah. This, we're now in the early 90s. Yeah. So I drove to my dad's hospital, and that was very sad, because eventually he passed away there. But I went back, and this was back in my mind. So when Casper said, you're staying in Merkinish to sort out this problem we have there, I was in a way relieved. I could see we couldn't carry on like this. Uh-huh. Wow. So I got the chance to take over, and I was asked to do the Mondeo. At that time, wasn't in good shape either, but we got it right. Yes, sir. A lot of hard work, we got it right. Also, to fix the Escort, which was very hard because the car was not stiff enough in a few very important places, but we had a great little team. Actually, we never made a great car, but we made it decent, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we relaunched it in '94. Anyway, during that time... We got the car of the year with Mondeo, and I remember hearing the news from a colleague in my home in Germany. And I'd been working so hard and put so much emotion into this car, I just burst out crying. Oh. It was a mixture of joy and actually relief. Uh-huh, yeah, 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 yeah. Validation that your yeah. decisions you'd made were yeah. correct. Yeah, and out of that team effort, we built a competence and a new process, mm. 
which then allowed it to do a series of hits. Mm-hmm. We had a system that could repeatably produce best-in-class cars. Calumny is, of course, in the focus. Can I ask, did you grow up in a bilingual household in Bangor? No, sadly not, because my dad spoke Welsh right. quite well. Yeah. But my mum didn't, right. and she more or less banned Welsh uh-huh, in the yeah. home. It wasn't unusual in she that period. She felt yeah. excluded yeah, yeah, yeah. and didn't want to be excluded. Yeah. Therefore, I entered the third stream in Welsh at school, yeah. for basically a foreign language, yeah, yeah, yeah. and never became really proficient. Right. My dad used to talk us in Welsh when we were younger, yeah. outside the home, but not enough to stick. Right. So sadly, my Welsh, my comprehension is not too bad, but my expression is um, basic. But I'm wondering, as someone who had to work a great deal in German, Mm. you became fluent in German ultimately, if growing up in a culture where there was more than one language being spoken, if that remapped your brain and allowed you to learn new languages. People who grow up bilingual find third languages much easier. Certainly that's what I've read, and my son is fluent in German, Italian and Spanish, I can see it's easier as you learn more and more languages. But I think for me, I'm not sure that bilinguality was a huge advantage in German. What it was a big advantage, actually, many sounds in German are like Welsh. Yes, indeed, yes. So pronunciation of German, I found very easy. Yeah, yeah. Because of my Welsh. Yeah, absolutely. I've said it myself, exactly the same thing. Okay, so you're now installed in a very responsible position at Ford with a number of hits. Mm. You know, the Galaxy's working out okay, the Mondeo is working out okay. And things are starting to change. You know, the car industry must work at least five to ten years ahead of what's on the market. Ford have always had tremendous future vision. You can see it in the look of the cars and look at the concept cars. Concept cars have been part of your responsibility too. You were given that responsibility at some point? Yes, well, the way we were structured at Ford, once I became head of all of R&D in Europe, that included design the so-called styling departments. And I had very good colleagues, so it's always collaborative. I have an eye for design, but I can't design the beautiful styling of a car. That's not my strength. I'm an engineer more than designer. But it's very important to be design literate. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you underestimate and you make cars functionally great, but not appealing. So to deliver the visions, the dreams of designers, you need to embrace their goals and figure out technical solutions to deliver in mass production what they're trying to achieve in appearance or in design language. You could think about it as as bridge Mm -hmm. between feasibility and appearance. Yeah. And I learned a lot from a guy called Jay Mays. You know him, I'm sure. He was very influential in my grasp of how engineering and design work together to do things not so straightforward. Yes, so we did quite a few concept cars. I think I was part of a movement, not only Ford, other companies too, where we used concept cars not only to provoke thinking as quite outlandish, far-flung ideas, but more and more to trial and tease Mm -hmm. potential future models. In other words, concept cars became more strongly linked to future production. Of course, nowadays, 
it's pretty normal. But in those days, it was mm. quite a shift. And people may be cynical and say, well, you're going to do it anyway. It's not true. Uh-huh. We really put something out there. We know we could make, but we gauge how well it goes down before we either firm up or modify uh-huh. our plans. So we talked about cars like the Zig and Zag were under your tenure, is that yeah, right? Yeah. The Indigo GT90, was that part yeah, of yours? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Time to remember some other 90s Ford concepts. Well, the one that sticks in my mind, I'm going to struggle for the name now, we showed it in Tokyo, is very, very boxy, orange and white. Oh, the C... The, um, yeah, the C... Um, I know exactly the car you mean. Yeah, it was shaped like a Simcoe 1000. That's right. Yeah, yeah. classic three-box yeah. saloon with carriage doors. Did the rear doors yes, open, hinged right. at the back? That was a great uh, car, which yeah. never went into production. No. Can't remember what it was called there. No, I It's like the C-Box or something, wasn't something it? Something like yeah. that. With a very interesting designer, we brought in as a consultant. Mm. Jamie's brought in to help us think that through. I think it's all part of learning in real time reaching out to consumers and press. Press are also valuable parts of the dialogue. Mm -hmm. They are sort of conduits in many ways for people at a larger scale interested in cars. Mm -hmm. And when we did the market research, we changed the way we did it from basically the old way was booty consist. So that tended to allow familiar shapes to win every time. And we were frustrated because by the time we launch it, it was out of date. Yes, yeah. So we changed the way we evaluate the results. We had a sort of filter. Before people came in, we showed them some products from the kitchen or the home or something like that. And we asked them to rate them. And we'd pre-sorted that some of these were advanced and some were very traditional. And what we're trying to do is filter out who were the more receptive customers to future ideas and design concepts and who were more firmly rooted in today's norms. Then when we scored the cars, or they scored the cars and we looked at the answers, what we looked for was the gradient between the ratings of the conventional traditionalists Mm -hmm. and the ratings of the more advanced oriented people. Mm -hmm. So the steeper the gradient, the more we value attached to that design. We're looking for, if like, a vector. Right, yeah, Giving yeah, us yeah. clue how things might evolve. Yeah, yeah. So often, once we started that Measure process, the trend, as it were. Yes, yeah. it, it forecasted a bit. Yeah. And so what we were doing then was often not approving or choosing the winning design in pure ratings, rather picking the one that had the most future-proofing mm. built in. Mm. So that was actually at its peak when we did theory. The probe 2 yeah. or the probe Not three, the probe. The, probe. The, the problem wasn't that, well, as a concept car, it was advanced. Yeah. The road car was not so advanced. Yeah. Still rear-wheel drive when the Cavalier uh, of the same period was front-wheel drive. Yeah. No, that's not true. Oh, really? Probe was front-wheel drive. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about the Probe Coupe, yes. not the Concept Probe. No. I beg your yeah. pardon. I was talking about the Concept Probe, yeah. which became the rear-wheel drive Sierra. Yes. You're talking about the Mazda-based Probe Coupe, which is the That's Mazda right. 6, yes? Yeah. In the day, yes. Can I ask you about that? Because your tenure under Ford was the PAG Group, was it? The Premier Automotive Group. So we had yeah. Jaguar, we had Volvo, we had Land Rover as all part of the greater, broader Ford brief how 
difficult did that make your job? Was that something that you were ultimately responsible for? Yes, I was. It didn't make it... Well, it made it difficult in one way, complexity, but in other ways, you could also learn a lot and transfer across the brands. I did a study with Bill Cosgrove for Jack Nesser back in the 90s. It was about, I'm going to guess, 96, something like that. And we looked at the market and we could see that the trend was clear. The volume brands, which really flourished during the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. growing with the market as people became able to afford a new car. In the 80s, it leveled off a bit, and we started to see premium brands start to grow. By the time we got to the 90s, all the growth really was premium. The compound annual growth rate of premium brands was 11% a year, compared with maybe 25 to 3 for the volume, volume. brands. Mm-hmm. So we said, oh, we really don't have much opportunity to participate in that. We need to acquire some brands and invest in a few we bought, like Jaguar and Aston Martin. So we set up the strategy. Of course, not everything you want for sale. So you have to have a strategy and then be opportunistic when these possibilities open up. So that's what led us to bid for originally Land Rover and then subsequently for Volvo. And also invest heavily in Jaguar and Aston Martin. We also invested in Lincoln, but Lincoln was never a worldwide brand. So I think limited ability to penetrate outside maybe USA and possibly China. Anyway, which put the whole thing together. And we then had like a back room called PAG, which looked for synergies across brands, a bit like VW, to use common parts that weren't central to the brand and only create unique parts for the brand essential elements to drive scale. And, you know, Aston Martin is a good case in point. Mm-hmm. We put together a plan to invest $350 million in the company to raise production from 500 to 6000 mm-hmm. and, in a way, secure the future of the company. I built Gaiden factory and R&D center, hired over-the-housing engineers, you know, versus six. And eventually, of course, when Ford got into trouble during the banking crisis, then all these jewels had to be sold off, which I found very, very painful. Did you vote against that? Was there a vote? Was there ever a a big meeting? I, I lobbied against it. Right. But, you know, I must say it was one of those terrible situations where it's like the family home. Yeah, yeah. And you have to sell some of the silver to pay the bills. Otherwise, you'd lose the whole thing. So what was your argument? Keep Jaguar, keep Aston Martin, sell Volvo, sell the shares in Mazda? No, I think that if I had to prioritise, I would say that Mazda would have been my least important thing to hold on to because it doesn't allow you access to premium market. Whereas I think Jaguar, Land Rover and Volvo were all very well positioned to really ride that wave of uh, premium change, which, by the way, we see today still continued. And nowadays, it's accessed for more and more people by personal leasing plans. Yes, yes. So nowadays, you can buy or lease, let's say, a premium brand for a few quid more 
than a normal brand per month? Well, it's one of the great questions <laughs> that you see applied to Ford all the time. What is premium? Yeah. I remember when the Mondeo was yeah. measured against the BMW 3 Series. Yeah. What are you really paying for? It's a brand, isn't it? I mean, Ford can turn out cars as well made as anybody, allegedly better than most. And yet, the base Ford is never going to be a premium brand. So you had to have access to Aston, Jaguar, Land Rover and the like, didn't you? I believe so, and I still believe that, to be honest. I mean, the rational world of buying you'd buy a Ford yeah, because it's reliable, it's good value, it's just as premium to drive as many fancy brands' names, but people don't buy it rationally. <laughs> they don't, do they? No. <laughs> they want the cachet yeah, of yeah. the premium brand to, in a way, to advertise socially they're successful. Yeah, you know, yeah. they can afford better things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aspirational. Of, of course, in a way, that does constrain how premium you can make the car mm -hmm. not in let's say functional terms certainly in terms of luxury touches you know if you put all the elements into a ford that we say put into an audi you can't command the price of an audi mm -hmm. so your margin is squeezed yeah so you know some of what you get when you buy a premium brand is real it is something they give you in exchange for the higher price but the amount of real stuff you get in a premium brand is not anywhere near as much as the price increase you uh -huh. pay yeah, yeah. over a Ford. Yeah. I think brands like Volvo and Land Rover all has appeal to me because they don't only offer premium in luxury sense. You can do more with them. Yeah. If in the case of Land Rover or Range Rover, you can get all the luxury but you can also do more things with the car. It's Ultimate ability. Exactly. Yeah. Volvo, famously, you know, you're buying safety yeah, yeah. as part, an additional part of the package. Yeah. So it's a bit more, uh, what's the right word? I think, I think the, those brands have more substance behind the premium offer. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ford is famously a blue-collar brand. It's a car for the masses. That is its strength yeah. and arguably its weakness as well. Would you say that because of its core identity as a people's car, you yeah. know, when Ford tried to do gear, yeah, yeah. GTXLR, Vignali, it's never quite going to work. No, it's ever. not premium, in mm. my opinion. What it is, is sort of near premium. Because what they're trying to do, which I think is correct, they're trying to showcase the fact that underneath the badge, there's actually a premium engineered vehicle. Yeah. yeah. So how to get customers, some customers to buy into that by giving a reason to say, oh, I should consider that because it's got Vignali version. It's got all the features I want nice leather and this and that and so i couldn't allow it to be added to my list of thinking also some customers are almost inverse snobs they don't want to buy the obvious premium brands they want to buy something that is very good value yeah. but they don't pay that extra piece just for the name yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so that market is also accessible to ford so I think that's right things to do, but nobody should ever kid ourselves. It's going to allow Ford to climb up to the brand price point of, let's say, Audi. But it's extra. If you don't have the Vinalia, 
you'll definitely have average food price be lower. Oh, right. So, so you, you have to do You it. have to do something like that. Wow. And as we said before, the underlying engineering, the way it drives, the quietness, the smoothness and so on, absolutely on the level of Audi. So why not try and communicate that with a little bit of premium mm-hmm. um, over, um, I won't say dressing up, but prepping up. Yeah, 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 I get it. Okay, I have to ask you about arguably your greatest hit, arguably the car which I most associate with the Richard Perry Jones name, and that's the Focus. That was a huge change for Ford because it was all about handling. That was the first time in many years that a Ford had been sold on its handling. You're directly responsible for that. Can I shake your hand again? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, really? I mean, you drove that, literally, didn't you? I did. In a way, that was the first car I did in a position of considerable influence where I could start from the beginning. Everything else I was taking over somebody else's project or modifying a car we had. Yeah. Focus was brand new, worldwide car, and I could start with a clean sheet. But we'd learned so much on Mondeo and on the... Puma and the Fiesta and so on. So all the learning we built into the Focus. And up until that time, I think Fords were largely sold. But the old model was, you know, make them look good. Sell them to fleets so that the reps will drive them. Maybe managers will drive a gear. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you basically knock them out and sell them in huge volume to fleets. As users chooses became into the market and more Japanese came into the market aiming fleets to Oita and Honda and so on, our strength was under attack. So I realized it couldn't carry on the way we were. We need to produce models or vehicles that in design terms and in driving terms, retail customers wanted to buy, desired to buy, not were given by the fleet manager. And that meant really raise our game. So we aimed high. <laughs> and you say handling, but actually it's much more than handling. Mm-hmm. It's what I call the way the car feels. Mm-hmm. Many customers, if you ask them what you would like in the car, they won't tell you, oh, the handling's great, the steering's so precise, the ride is well controlled. They'll say, I'm not quite sure why, but I just like driving it. I feel confident in it. So my argument with the people inside Ford at the time, and I want to spend money on these outcomes, they said, well, look, show me the evidence. Customers will value what you want to spend money on. I said, that's hard because customers don't talk in the precise terms that we talk in. Mm -hmm. But what we can do, we can do rational analysis on the ratings in JG Power Mm -hmm. on each attribute and correlate that to overall satisfaction. And when we did that, we found that steering and handling correlated very strongly with overall satisfaction. So that was my evidence to the people challenging. You Uh, see, that's an engineer speaking. You're looking for correlation. You're looking for evidence-based stuff, aren't you? Science. Yes. Use science. Anyway, so we got evidence, and we went ahead and set the targets. But, of course, setting a target is one thing. Delivering it is another. And I would say we got where we got to by a mixture of science and art, (laughs) i.e., The science was partly the customer stuff, 
partly really having modeling simulations that gave us precisely the enabling elements in the design. You still had to tune it, but at least you didn't spend all your time in the development phase fixing errors rather than fine-tuning right. yeah, yeah. Uh, greatness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we got the car's prototype form. They worked well out of the box, but I saw then opportunity to make it special. And I must give credit to Jackie Stewart. Because uh-huh. Jackie Stewart really opened my eyes to how to evaluate a car. In fact, the only thing I was able to do that Jackie can't do, because I'm an engineer, I can feel what he's trained me to feel. I can then start to analyze why is it feeling like that, what should we go measure, and what are likely causes and likely countermeasures. So, in a way, I had all the latter bits. Until I met Jackie, I didn't have all the former bits. I could drive a car. I could evaluate it. But I hadn't learned how to really focus on each element of the experience I'm feeling. Uh So I could analyze it better. And that's what Jackie taught me to do. So he was like a sensor and you were interpreting the data that that sensor gave you? Initially, but what he taught me to do was do it myself. Right. He trained me to be an evaluator using his techniques. So I could do it without him. Richard, okay. imagine you've got an egg on the bonnet <laughs> and you're driving and you mustn't upset the egg. I mean, that's well, what I hear. <laughs> one example is many development drivers of the day, they jump in the car. The car is being fueled to the brim by the technicians. Engine's being warmed up. The car's ready to go. It's even done a few laps, so the brakes are warm, the tyres are warm, and everything's good. And people jump in, full throttle, charge around the circuit on the limit, come back and give feedback. Jackie said, this is ridiculous. No, we get in the car, we insist, it's off it cold. We have to fill it ourselves. We have to unlock it ourselves. We have to start the engine ourselves. The whole process that you usually go through. Exactly. And what he taught me to do is, at each step, slow everything down. So you can really absorb in fine detail What's actually going on? Uh-huh, yeah. Sounds, haptic feedback, everything. And, you know, that's what led to the 50-meter test. It was my idea, but it was based on the learning from Jackie. Okay, and at that point, it would be a huge pleasure for me to take you outside to this yeah. Ford Focus Vignali I've turned up in today and do this famous 50-meter test. Will you show me what it's all about? Absolutely. Well, Excellent. Let's go outside. I'd love to hear your impressions of the new Focus. It's come a long way and it's, what are we, fourth generation now. Do you like the way the car's evolved? Yeah, I do. I think, obviously, with the first Focus, we made such a huge change. Yes. I sometimes hanker for more boldness. Yes, yes, Um, yes, yes. But I think it's very elegant. And certainly, I think the new design is quite different from the previous one, mm-hmm. especially the front end. The trapezoidal grille, which has become ubiquitous Ford yeah. now, which I always claim was stolen from Aston Martin under your tenure. <laughs> I mean, that's become a Ford thing. I would defy anybody to say that looks like Aston Martin grille. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, let's get in the car and do yeah. for me this 50-metre test. I don't know, are you insured to drive under your Ford? Uh, can you, dr- yeah. you are. Yeah. You take the keys then. I'm going to sit in the passenger seat. Yeah, so 
before we get in though. Okay, all oh, right, before we get in, let me come around there. What? We, we must operate the door handle. Right. So what I'm looking for here is how much free play is there before yeah. you engage yeah, the yeah. mechanism? And what sound does it make? Listen to that. It's quite damped, not clackety. Put the mic down there. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. quite damped, yeah. which is good. The free play may be a bit more than I would look Prefer, for. Yeah. Then I'm looking for how does it feel as you increase the release effort? Oh, that's nice. Yeah, you like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that must be very reassuring for you to know that the focus is in good hands. Yes, and then we open the door and we're immediately going to shut it again. But listen. Oh, nice. Yes. See, that lovely thunk. Yeah, yeah. Soft thunk, no aftershocks, yeah. no tinniness. Yeah. Lovely, low-frequency, reassuring sound. Good. And it continues once you sit in. And your first reaction to controls. I'm going to come round that side, I think, Richard. Fantastic. What a treat. So, your first impressions. Have you sat in this model of Focus? No, I haven't, actually. No? No. First impressions? It's always important, I think, your initial response to anything. It is. First impressions are positive. I'm not sure about the soya milk. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's an optional extra. uh, That comes in my version of the car. In my knee, but now it's much better. (laughs) We've moved it. Little things, I like that. That's soft on the console. So when you lean your shin over to the left... Instead of having a hard edge, lovely and cushioned. Yeah, yeah. yeah That's comfortable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Similar, similar over here. It's nice and angled to avoid any sharp edge digging into your thigh. So that's good. The seats feel very supportive. Yeah. Both on the cushion, but also lovely round the side of my back. Not intrusive, not too much pressure nice contact yeah you give too much contact too much support yeah. and you get a car that's difficult to get in and out yeah. of and that's important to Ford it's yeah. going to be usable isn't it what you're looking for now I'm looking for visibility out of the interior on modern cars nowadays to get the styling right they tend to have more shallow greenhouse yeah but this is not bad I wouldn't say the best ever example of visibility from inside but it's certainly good enough for the purpose. I'm not criticising it. I was told a story once about the Galaxy, which is yeah. one of yours. Yeah. Although you can't see the furthest point away on the nose of a Galaxy, Ford put it where a group of people who were given a market study told them they expected to find it. Do you know that story? Is that resonating? Any familiarity at all? No, because the front end length of a car is not fixed by that at all. It's fixed by crash. Okay, and that's it. (laughs) So that's a myth, that story. I'm afraid so. All you can really do with the visibility, you can alter the height of the eye point to see more or less of the road ahead. Right. And you also can fiddle with the slope or features on the bonnet, hood top. But the actual front end of the car distance from the face of the bumper to my what we call h point you know yeah your hit points that is fixed by crash right it has to be there to meet the requirements yes 
Okay. Are we ready to drive yet, or have we got more studying to do? Well, normally we'd spend a lot more time studying, but we can do examples. Okay, yeah. So one of the things we do is we touch controls before we fire up. Just to get the feel of them and the sound of them, we scrape things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, With our fingernails to make sure it's not reverberating. So far, this car's coming across well because everything's soft, feel, smooth, and impressive. Quality, definitely. Visually, mostly it works. One little area I would go back and tell the engineers to improve is the interface between the A-pillar and the headlining. There's a ridge there, isn't there? Maybe that could be more flush. Yeah. But elsewhere, I think it's well done. Look at this, for example, around the door pull and the door trim. It's very nicely inset and layered, so you can't actually see the joint. Yeah, 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 yeah. nice. And this also ergonomically is excellent because it naturally, this is the interior door handle, it naturally falls under your fingers uh-huh. as you reach for it. Uh-huh. There's no conflict or awkwardness yeah, in yeah. grabbing yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very Ergonomically nice. designed. I think it's good on the ergonomic side. Indeed, yeah. I do. Let's, let's fire up. It's auto. so It is CVT. Okay. Of course. That's interesting. Now, we have low fuel. And the sound was not alarmist sound it was informative to make sure you know but nothing rather to yeah, make yeah. you panic yeah 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 yeah. that's yeah. important because in the past we've some cars there have been too much aggressive warning signs and sounds going on this is again well done okay now what we did then was we waited for the engine to stabilize the idle and now we evaluate vibration Without hands on the steering wheel, first of all, just through the seat. Uh-huh. If we shut the steering wheel at the same time, we have two signals to process. Uh-huh. We get confused. So one at a time. We uh-huh. try and isolate it. Again, pretty good, pretty smooth. Yeah. I'm not feeling much in the way of four-plan vibration. Then we shut the steering wheel, okay? Now, normally you touch like that. But I want to really feel precisely what's going on. Two fingers. Think two fingers, not yeah. the whole hand, really. Yeah. And that's how you measure. So give me MBA a more sensitivity. The, yes, of course. On the yeah, hand. Yeah. You're taking the pulse of the car yes. there, aren't you? Again, very quiet, very damped. So I'm not being disturbed by the engine, yeah. but I know it's there. I can hear a little bit of noise, very muted, but definitely you can hear it. Yeah. It's not completely silent, but it's not disturbing. So. Now we can engage gear. With a knurled knob. Very Jaguar, isn't it, to have a, a knurled knob for your yeah, gear well, selection? Yes, although I guess nowadays we'd probably use the pedals more. Yeah. I'm feeling the play there. Happy with that? Puzzled. Oh, right. It shouldn't yeah. be as free as that. I didn't find it without really doing something unusual. Yeah. But not sure why it's there. But I tell you what's good. You go from neutral to drive, and the engagement clonk is very minimal. Now we stop, we drove forward a yard or two. I'll turn the radio off, there we go. And now we go to reverse. 
Now, there I heard what we call brake groan. Mm-hmm. As they lift off. Yes. Yeah. As you lift off the brakes and go forward and back. What I'm looking for here is lack of smoothness in the gears engaging as you go from D to R and vice versa. Yeah. I would say this is pretty good. It's not absolutely seamless, mm-hmm. but it's damn good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the things I noticed about this car, that when you're doing a three-point turn with this sort of CVT, switching between reverse and forward it's a little slow. It's not something which can happen quickly and smoothly. It gets there, but it's not immediate. Um, yeah, not, I'm not, not unhappy with that. Not sensing that. Maybe I'm just a bit anxious these days. I'm just in a hurry. <laughs> oh, that, that's very nice. Now, immediately, what I'm feeling is excellent performance feel responsiveness and you can tell that in less than yes. 100 yards absolutely and also the f- feeling of the steering just let this guy overtake it's also well centered yep. even this speed I try and push off center I get little rise of torque in my fingers note two fingers here yeah yeah and also immediate gain immediate change of direction from the vehicle not sudden yeah. but immediate right nice modulation we call it dosing 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 yes the amount of dose that you put in is what you get back in yes. responsiveness dosing that's a new term I've never heard that before it comes from the German dosbarkeit okay dosability right okay yeah, yeah. now we are just increasing speed a bit to about 40 miles an hour and we're looking for how the steering is continuing to behave. It's still very precise. Lovely feedback, intuitive feedback. So it pushes back towards the center, but not too hard. But immediately, not with a lash in the middle where yeah, you're yeah. not connected. Yeah, yeah, no slack I'm in the lo- middle. Exactly. Yeah, I'm yeah. looking for that, and it's definitely in good shape there. Road nice from this surface. A bit higher than I expected, mm-hmm. but low frequency, which is good, rather than high frequency. And do you tune that Very out with good. suspension, or do you tune no. that out with padding? Uh, I wouldn't say padding, but certainly it's a matter of if it's structure-borne, damping on the panels. Yeah. If it's airborne, it's just sealing. Right. But what's good about this, very good, is the way it masters small breaks in the surface. Right. You look at a grid or a little tar strip or a repair on the road and watch how the car reacts or doesn't. See? I'm Drops not, down and picks up. Yeah, yeah. Very quiet. Yeah. You know, that's the main thing. No feeling of a shock. Yeah. And putting energy into the system, which then oscillates yeah. until it settles. Yeah. It, it's dealt with there and then. And in a damped way. Yeah. yeah. So it's a smooth entry. A damped response and a smooth exit. Yeah. Now we speed it slightly to about 50 miles an hour. We enter a right-hand bend and we dose the steering in very progressively and we see the car is very good at tracking to the right line. I've always got a line target in my mind yep. and I measure how well does the vehicle follow my target line. Yeah. 
So it's important when you do the test not to drive in the middle of a road, but to drive close to the white line so that you can measure how easily you can follow it. Right, yeah. That's a great one, Richard. Yeah. I mean, that. Yeah. Yes. Because if there's any wandering, it will show it up because yes. you've got a line, a delineation yes. mark, you might say. Yeah. Yes, it's like when you drive it a bit faster. I always like to drive on stone-walled lined roads <laughs> because then, you know, any error is going to be penalised. <laughs> That's great. I'm having that as well. <laughs> Only when I'm in someone else's car, though, not my own. <laughs> well, but what it does is forces you to be precise. Yeah. Because you know if you make a sloppy move, you'll be punished for it. Whereas where it's grass on the side, you can make a mistake and yeah. you won't swipe the edge of the road. Yeah. So you like what you found so far? Yes, I do. I mean, it's a very refined vehicle, and it feels very, you know, thoroughly developed. I can't see anything jumping out that says it hasn't benefited from really intensive development, and the body is very stiff. Yep. You can't get this performance unless you make the frame, it all mounts to, nice and stiff. Yeah. The development of the Focus falls to Europe in Ford's world strategy these days. Larger cars focused from the States. This is a classic European Ford, isn't it? It is. It's a heartland, in a way, of the Ford brand. But we have to recognise as well that what's happening in the marketplace is more and more consumers are choosing the crossover format. Yeah. And no doubt the sort of Cougar equivalent, which is the same platform, by the way, as yeah. this, that will be more and more popular. Yeah. These cars still have their place, though, because not everyone wants a crossover, but more and more people, relatively speaking, are choosing the crossover format. Yeah. Cougar does well. It's one of the top-selling. does top, very well. Top 12, yeah. I think, at yeah. the moment. It's yeah. surprising, isn't it, how yeah. we've asked for more height in our cars. Why do we want that? It's not so much purely the height and where you sit. Yeah. It's also, if you have a certain footprint, i.e. area of the road you can occupy, the more upright you make the passengers sit, the more space they have to relax. Shijaro's mega gamut. No, more leg room, yeah. more room for the hips. Yep. And, of course, cars are a bit wider now as well to accommodate a growing population. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, nowadays people carry more stuff. Mm-hmm. So you need storage space in the cars, mm-hmm. much more than even the past. Phones and coffees yeah. and iPads and, yeah. yeah. So we've just pulled off into a lay-by. Now we can do a couple of other little things. We give it a little bit of gas to restart. We evaluate how well and fast it restarts. The speed, though, look, we're only doing five miles an hour, uh-huh. but we can test... Returnability. Right, so the steering wheel springs back to centre. Yes, and if it's got too much friction in it, yeah. that won't happen. Right. So we can measure friction by that. Right, at five miles per hour. Yeah. Right, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, because high speeds will eliminate that. It'll get lost in yes. all the other energies. You drive in the through it. Yeah, indeed, yeah. It's still there, though. It's robbing you of information.
low speed maneuverability wheel at extremists yeah. we learn from stuff about that well as you press the throttle with the lock extreme anger on yeah you're looking for is there any sign of the torque tugging at the car yeah either one way or the other yeah in this case absolutely zero right so no what we call cross torque cross torque yeah of the cars that you have been responsible for what did you get wrong over the years oh a lot really uh, absolutely if you don't recognize mistakes you made you never get better so i'm the first to admit we made the mistakes as well as got things right the only reason we net did well was we made more good moves than bad moves <laughs> not that we didn't make any bad moves what was the worst move in that range of good and bad what was the low point i think the most difficult car that we did that i didn't decide the process well was actually remember the cougar yes we did off the mondeo yes yes i think we didn't do a great job there i think we overestimated how good the car would be because the Mondeo had done so well. Right. And we didn't really study the market well enough, or indeed look carefully enough at the challenges of doing it. And as a result, I mean, frankly, the car didn't sell and it lost us money. Right. And I was an advocate of doing it, so yeah. I am asked put my hand hands up and say uh, that was my bad decision. Was it because it was on a front drive platform? Perhaps a coupe is more suited to a rear drive platform. Simple as that. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think in the case of very high power outputs, rear drive is hard to beat. Yeah. But for the kind of power we're talking about, yeah. I mean, two hundred and ten. It was nothing yeah. Yeah, yeah. compared with. Look at the last Ford Focus RS. Yeah. That was, what, 300 horsepower? Correct, yeah. And, you know, no issues there. Yeah. So I don't think that was the issue. I think it was more, was the market really there? Mm -hmm. Was it refined enough for the price? And did we get the styling right? Mm -hmm. And I think in all these cases, my answer was either we got it wrong or we didn't hit the bullseye. I think... It didn't have a halo car. I think if there had been a Cougar Cosworth, it might have filtered down and made the other Cougars in the range appear more appealing. A Cougar ST never existed, did it? Maybe that's all it was. That may have helped, but I don't think you can say that such a simple magic pill would have fixed it <laughs> <laughs> it's a complex thing isn't it it's a series of things converging together on a market at the same time other products from other companies so who are Ford's greatest rival VW or Toyota would you say or GM in your days I think that in my day the greatest rival without doubt was Toyota Yep. You look at the kind of appeal they have on the kind of markets they sell in. Toyota was definitely a benchmark. It wasn't GM, because Toyota was doing better than GM. Right. From product point of view, pure product, we obviously benchmarked VW a lot. Yeah. But VW managed to lift the brand above Ford and Opel in Europe. Yeah. And therefore it was hard to realize the same price but in terms of what we offered we always aimed to beat VW and who are Ford's rivals today is it Hyundai who are 
offering a people's car, well-specced, all the sort of things that you might attribute to a Ford, great value, all the spec, and yet without a premium badge. I think the Koreans are a greater threat to Ford than the Japanese are at the moment. I wouldn't underestimate the impact of the Japanese, but I think there are Koreans, Japanese, are very much the people offering the same proposition of sword. Everyday cars done really well, affordable price, no sort of fancy bells and whistles. Yeah. As such. Just uh, turn right here into the gates. So I think that the market for brands like Ford is still very strong hmm. but you mentioned earlier being a people's car to every man every woman in the car is that a strength or is it a weakness and the answer I think is we've gone through a period let's say 1910 to 1980 when the demand for cars in America and Europe was growing so strongly year over year Ford's brand fitted very well. Then we get to the 80s and 90s and 2000s when we get saturated markets, the developed markets, but strong growth in China and India. And there we see Ford struggle a little bit in the so-called developed markets because the customers no longer take the cars for granted. Mm -hmm. And now they're looking for something extra, mm -hmm. like a premium brand or something like this. But in China and India... Many people still looking for the things Ford oh. was famous for. Yes, of course. And therefore, Ford has a very relevant role in those markets. And in fact, India is doing very well. In China, they've got a late start, did a super job for a few years. Right now, a bit down due to a bit of a hiatus in the model range, but they'll come back. And so I think in the growth markets, where value for money and so on is still very important, I think those are still very interesting markets for Ford and its brand. And then we think about the future. The future, as we know, probably more towards mobility services mm -hmm. rather than purely car ownership as we know it today. I personally don't think it'll become all that way, but it will become different, diversify. And with autonomous control vehicles, we could even see a possibility of there being pods mm -hmm. rather than normal vehicles and so suddenly you know cars are becoming less of a status symbol and more of a transportation tool well guess what that sounds like a Ford to me. Yes, it does. Yeah, moving people—that was the yeah. uh, premise, wasn't it? Mobilizing mobility. Yeah, mobility. Yeah. It's written into Ford's yeah. almost strapline, isn't yeah. it? Okay, I want to bring this to a head now. I want to briefly talk about your final days at Ford and where you are now, because you retired from Ford in two thousand and seven. Why? I'd done almost forty years, and I was about fifty-five coming on 56 and I'd said to my colleagues and bosses at the time I'm thinking about you know winding now so they were very good by the way I read a lot of data that says people who work flat out and then stop suddenly they are not the healthiest people who wind down very gradually over many years but remain engaged but less pressure they tend to do better so I thought that makes sense for me. Also, I wanted to explore the world outside Ford. Don't forget, I joined Ford as a schoolboy. 
I'd never really known anything outside Ford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for 40 years, I thought, man, surely I, I can, while well, I still can, I'll go and try doing something else. But I didn't want to work for a competitor of Ford. I mean, why devote 40 years of your life to building a company and then go and try and destroy it from another place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't want to go and work for another car company. I thought I'd do a bit of government work because a lot of people criticize government for the things they get wrong. And God knows they got a lot wrong. But if you don't try and help them, you can't blame them. They don't understand what we know in the industry. So I joined forces with uh, colleagues and government to try and crash this um, UK auto strategy and recommended the council be set up. I co-chaired that for, I think, six or seven years. And we tried to get the UK car industry back on its feet. And I think on the whole, I didn't do it, but the people in the industry have done it. All we did was create some more right conditions for that to happen. So I think working alongside government is an important role for experienced in technical or industrial people. Otherwise, you can sit on the sidelines and complain, but are you really doing what you could be doing mm -hmm. to try and help? That's one thing I spent my time doing, also with Welsh government, by the way. I spent, I think, about five years as chairman of the Ministerial Advisory Group, I think it was called, MAG, to advise ministers for economy, energy and transport. And that was interesting work. And I think we, again, influenced the government to a positive degree. At the smaller governments, as we have here in Wales, yeah. you can turn things around more quickly. I mean, it's quite different to Ford, isn't it? <laughs> mm, I no? The scale is smaller, you could say. But actually, you look at the responsibilities of a minister in any government. Mm. They are actually the scope is far wider than any company yeah. has ever taken on. Yeah, 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 yeah. So scope is a major uh, yeah. challenge for politicians. And I think often politicians and even voters overestimate how much they can do. Uh -huh. They can help. They can't fix everything. Uh -huh. yeah. You know, people have to fix things. Yeah. So I'm currently, since I think April, I'm taking over the chair of the so-called WAF, Welsh Automotive Forum which is a government body trying to help the Welsh auto sector flourish. So I'm still very much, since I retired, in fact, slightly before, trying to promote the sector, working in partnership with government and other companies. Do you know what? I remember reading a quote of yours many, many years ago, which I used in a song. I wrote a song about building cars in Wales. And the quote, I can't remember where I got this from, possibly Car Magazine. You said at one point, I am Welsh through of my bones. <laughs> Which rhymes rather well with Richard Parry Jones. So I put that in a song. And it's clear to me that as you've returned to this beautiful position near Hadlech, I mean, mm. this is home, isn't it, for you, it North Wales, that that much is certain. But also, not only do you have cars through your bones, you still have Ford through your bones. 
and that's indicated by your refusal to go and work for a rival. Is that a fair summary of who you are, would you say? I think if you cut me open, you definitely find Ford Oval. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I not surprised? It's a huge part of my life, yeah. and they gave me a lot. I gave them a lot as well, of course, but nothing I did was impossible without Ford and the people who worked there. Everything we do <laughs> is driven by you. I think that's a phrase I've heard before. Richard Perry Jones, thank you so very much for giving me your time today, your generous time. It's a huge privilege and a pleasure to meet not only someone whose work I'm familiar with in my favourite car company, but a Welshman too. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Thank you. To send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed! Speed! Speed!